You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd like to take your seats and open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 8 this morning. We're continuing on our way through John's Gospel. I'm asking the question this morning, why is there such hostility to Jesus? I don't just mean when he took on human flesh and walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Why is there still such hostility towards him? When you read the Gospels, it's hard to find anything bad to accuse him of. In fact, he said, he asked the question, what sin do you find in me that you accuse me of at one stage? And of course, they couldn't find me. He went around helping people, healing people, teaching people. The Sermon on the Mount, for example, is one of the most loved teachings by anyone at any time. So it seems that most people, assuming they ever believe he existed in the first place, agree that Jesus was a good man. And we've talked about this in the past, about whether Jesus is a good man and whether he is just a good man. And of course the answer is yes, he is a good man, but he is more than just a good man at the same time. And yet people still hate him. They, and they hate his followers too. And we sometimes don't help the cause of Christ by being judgmental or narrow-minded or proud or exclusive in our attitudes towards people. We often give non-Christians good reason to dislike us and by extension to dislike anything about Christ. Jesus was, for the most part, misunderstood and despised by his countrymen. Some hated him enough that they made several attempts to kill him months and years before they finally succeeded. So what did he ever do wrong? Well, for a nice guy, he did say a lot of insulting things to people. He did serve it up to the hypocrites amongst the religious leaders of his day. In the middle of one exchange with these religious leaders, one of the experts in the law piped up and said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And he certainly did. And he never apologised for it. Jesus had such a gentle and compassionate way with those who were hurting, those who were sick or who were lost, who were frightened or oppressed. But he didn't hold back when he confronted the rich and the powerful and the arrogant religious leaders. That's not the only reason why they hated him. There's a more important reason than that. And it's one that applies to this very day. Jesus told his brothers back in John 7, 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's why the world hates Jesus. And that's why the world hates his followers too. Because that's what the cross does. It testifies that everyone's works are evil. The cross wouldn't have been necessary if we were all nice people, good people who by nature did nothing but good things. But the cross is necessary because, as Jeremiah put it, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. So because no one likes to be told they are anything less than good or perfect, 
the cross and the claims of Jesus Christ are not popular. And that results in much evasion and subject changing when someone is confronted with the claims that Jesus makes about himself. As we'll see in our passage today in John chapter 8 starting from verse 12 if you've got your Bibles with you. But tells us again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Verse 17, in your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. But they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Have you ever got into a conversation about Christ with someone who's not a Christian? And if you have, did you find it to be a generally frustrating experience? If your conversations are like ones I've had in the past, the person will ask what sounds like a legitimate question coming from someone who is genuinely interested in the answer. Aha, you think, an opportunity to tell them about Christ. These don't come around every day. I'd better not blow this. So you ponder for a moment about how to answer the question and launch into your response. But before you get to the best part, they go off on a tangent and ask something else. All right, you think I know the answer to this one too. So you head off down that track. But before you get to the good stuff, they've gone in a different direction again. What's this question got to do with the last one, you might wonder? And so it goes. You never actually get to give a proper answer to any of your questions. And you leave frustrated and annoyed with yourself. No one ever wants me to ask me about my faith in Jesus. When I finally get a chance to tell someone, I blow it. I never seem to be able to give them the right answer. I wonder if that's your experience too. I've had that more times than I can count probably. We can come away from discussions like that feeling disheartened rather than encouraged and feeling guilty too. 
Well, if that person never shows interest in Christ, Christ again for the rest of their life, what if they end up in hell just because I wasn't able to answer their questions properly? It'll be my fault. But will it really be your fault? I know there are plenty of Christians who feel that way, and I've felt that way myself in the past. We only get so many chances to tell non-Christians about our faith. It's such a rare thing, and when the opportunity finally arrives, we blow it by not having the answers to their questions. But I wonder just how genuine most of these questions really are. Do they really want to know? Or are they, as the saying goes, just blowing smoke up your rear end? Jesus encountered this too, you know, and it's instructive for us to see how he handled it. As we've just seen in our passage today, every time Jesus makes a claim that the Pharisees don't like, they change direction. They issue him with a new question that reveals that they have no idea what he's talking about, or they raise another objection. So let's just very quickly look at them again. In verse 12, Jesus said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And the Pharisees replied, Your testimony is not true. In verse 18, Jesus said, The Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they ask, Who is your Father? Verse 21, Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they reply, Will he kill himself? In verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? Who are you? How long has Jesus been telling them who he is? And they ask the question, who are you? It's a consistent pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. Whenever he makes a claim, they either argue with him about it or they change direction. Excuse me. If that happened to Jesus, why would you imagine that you'd receive better or more respectful treatment than Jesus did? The servant is not above his master, you'd recall Jesus saying. Why do you assume that people are more genuinely interested in what you have to say than when they were when the master was there in their midst? I reckon there's at least a dozen other times this happens to Jesus just in the first eight chapters of John's Gospel. Here's a couple of them. John 2.16, Jesus said, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And they reply, What sign do you show for doing these things? In John 8.47, coming up, Jesus said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And they reply, You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. It's a pretty standard strategy by anyone who doesn't genuinely want answers. Some people might be curious enough to listen for a while, but if you start poking in a sensitive area or begin to press for a response to the claims of Christ, don't be surprised if they try to steer the conversation in a different direction or if they turn their back on you entirely. And why do they do this? Because at heart, they don't really want to follow Jesus. They don't really want to give up the autonomy, autonomy that they think they have and admit that they need to depend on someone else. Jesus told us back in John chapter 7 that my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's the test. 
And that's why they reject what you're telling them. They don't want to do God's will. They're having too much fun doing their own will. But what about people who really are seeking after God? How do we deal with them? Well, the first question we need to ask, and it might surprise you, is is that is there anyone who is not yet a Christian that is genuinely seeking after God? The Bible seems to make pretty clear that no one understands, no one seeks for God. Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Old Testament. So it should be no surprise if your questioner changes tack on you halfway through your conversation. The truth is, no one is genuinely seeking God unless the Holy Spirit is already doing a work in them. And if he is, they will be drawn to Christ. They will be drawn to salvation. Jesus promised that back in John chapter 6. We may come back to that before we're done today. It's always been that way. What, if anything, can we do about it? Some churches have tried to address the problem of a lack of interest in Christ by running what they call seeker-sensitive services. These were extremely popular probably 10, maybe 20 years ago. Some seeker-sensitive churches were even started based on surveys of non-Christians to find out what they wanted to hear and wanted to experience in church. Seeker-sensitive churches attempt to provide an attractive setting for non-Christians so that they will want to come to church, to come for the experience, even if it's not to hear about Christ. You may have been to these types of church services in the past, and there's plenty around. I wouldn't call them seeker-sensitive churches that still run their services in much the same way. Slick productions in blackened-out rooms, you know what they're like. Thunderously loud music performed by a band as talented as any chart-topping act anywhere in the world. Sometimes even a smoke machine to make sure they set the right mood. Interesting talks. Be careful not to label them sermons. They're talks about all sorts of timely and encouraging topics. They often rarely make mention of Christ. Rarely use the Bible for fear of putting the seekers off. Are all these things wrong? Not necessarily. Not speaking of Christ, not using the Bible is wrong in my opinion, but the others are not necessarily wrong. But if the seeker-sensitive market is what you're aiming for, you may be disappointed for the simple reason that no one seeks for God. You're targeting a market that doesn't exist. Others, on on the other hand, will try their hand at apologetics ministries, Apologetics is all about providing reasoned and reasonable answers to questions about faith and aiming to undermine objections about faith. Some people are experts at this. The recently disgraced Ravi Zacharias was a brilliant apologist, possibly the best I've ever heard. His arguments for Christian faith are strong, even if his private life was a disaster. There's others, Dr. John Lennox, Lee Strobel, Greg Kukul, who are all experts in the field. Dr. James White is another brilliant apologist. The man has a brain the size of a small planet, and he puts it to good use, debating with Mormons and Muslims and anyone else who will challenge him. 
Apologetics is an important ministry. And it's a useful skill. It springs out of 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter wrote, Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I wonder how many people have been converted thanks to the efforts of apologetics ministries. No doubt it's helpful to be able to show the flaws in some of the arguments that are advanced by non-Christians, and it may help prepare someone to hear the gospel. But is it an effective tool to bring someone to salvation? I suspect not. I suspect it doesn't have the power to take people on that next step from unbelief to faith in Christ. And why not? Because Paul wrote, it's not our words of eloquent wisdom that lead to faith, but it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Let's be honest, if we can convince someone to change their mind about Christ based on how much fun we make church, or based on the strength of our arguments, what happens if someone comes along with a better experience or a better argument? So how did Jesus handle this? If providing attractive church services won't do the job, and if apologetics only has limited use, what's a Christian to do? How are we to convince someone of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so we can lead them to faith? More to the point, how did Jesus respond to his questioners and critics? For one thing, and in marked contrast to many modern Christians, Jesus never backed down on his claims or his demands. He never softened his message. If anything, he doubled down on them. Every time someone got upset about his statements, he gave them another dose of the same. Excuse me. as we work through John's Gospel, we'll see that over and over again, especially in response to one particular statement he makes, and that's a claim to be Yahweh, a claim to be the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. You might not recognise it in our English translations, but he's already made that claim twice in John's Gospel. He'll make it again before we reach the end of John chapter 8. In fact, seven times in all in John's Gospel, he'll make that same claim to be God, the God of the Old Testament. And each time, the Pharisees become more enraged with him and more determined to have him put to death. That might, that's not, might not sound very encouraging to you. Sadly, the first response of many Christians then is to try to soften the message in the face of unbelief and opposition to try and make Christ seem less offensive. After all, we wouldn't want to upset people, would we? But instead, Jesus' response should inspire us to not water down our message about Christ. To stand strong and firm in the face of mockers and doubters and opponents. And there's plenty of those around today. The other thing I find interesting is that Jesus didn't ever chase after someone to try to convince them otherwise. If people didn't like what he had to say, he let them go. You'd remember the story in Mark 10, for example, 
Mark 10.17, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And this man said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him, it tells us. But what did Jesus not do? He didn't go after him. In fact, I can't think of a single instance of Jesus chasing after someone who didn't like what he had to say. He spoke the truth to them and he left it at that. Why? Isn't it unloving to leave someone like that, to not go after them and try to win them over? Not if Jesus, the perfect man and very God, did that. Not if Jesus really knows what he's doing. You might also remember another saying of Jesus. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I wonder if there might be a lesson somewhere for us in this. I wonder whether we'd be far better off proclaiming our message boldly and without watering it down and leaving it to the Lord to use it however he sees fit. That strikes me as being an outworking of genuine faith in the power of God's word to achieve what God sends it forth to do. And it's an outworking of the recognition that we don't have the power to save someone. Rather, that's the exclusive domain of the Lord. Might remind you that Jesus said, I will build my church. Not you, not me, but Jesus himself will build his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that Jesus builds. There's no guarantees about any church that we might build, that it will last. We can't demand or expect that our efforts or even our miracles and prophetic words will build his church. It's not our job. It's his. Our job is to faithfully proclaim his word and to give a reason for the hope that is within us and leave the results up to him. So then I'm suggesting that we don't need to chase after people and also that we don't need to pour resources into flashy church services and slick bands and big name speakers. But be careful, I'm not suggesting we should settle for sloppy or lazy. We should do whatever we do with excellence to honour our Lord, if for no other reason. 
Why is it that we don't need to stress about not achieving the lofty standards of attractiveness of Hillsong or Bethel or Elevation Church or some other church like that? Partly because the Lord has called us to be faithful with what he has provided us. Whether he's provided us much or whether he has provided us little, we are to be faithful. Whether it's 20,000 people we're speaking to or two people, we are to be faithful to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's also partly because of what Jesus told us back in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Did you notice that? Everyone. Everyone who has heard from the Father will come to Jesus. Everyone who the Father draws will come to Jesus. But only those the Father draws. You know what that means for us? As faithful as we may be in proclaiming Christ, we can't draw anyone to Christ. That's the job of someone else. And so ultimately, we're not responsible for the salvation of anyone. We just can't do it. John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Rest assured that if the Father is drawing someone to Christ, they will come. We can also be confident that when they do come, he will never abandon them. He will never cast them out. When Jesus saves someone, they are properly saved. That's his promise. And that's why we don't need to feel guilty, to feel like a failure when people keep changing the subject during a conversation and we can't get our point across. It's why we don't have to get upset when people don't seem to want to hear our message. Those who the Father is, is drawing will want to hear it. Those whom the Father is not drawing really won't be that interested. They'll make excuses, they'll change the subject. And we can't, by our efforts, overcome that. We hope and pray that one day, one day they will want to hear it. We hope and pray that the Lord will open the door for us to plant seeds in fertile soil. Seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ that will bring forth plants and fruit in his good timing. It's also why we don't need to be frightened to proclaim the truth boldly and without compromise. As the early Christians prayed, they prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and they might have said their objections and their mockery and their sidetracks, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
Friends, we live in a world that increasingly wants to silence Christians and to marginalise the church. If we won't speak of Christ boldly now, when will we? Really, the only ones we will attract by watering down the message of Christ are those who really don't want the true Jesus. They want someone who will affirm their feelings, someone who will make them feel good about themselves, someone who will agree with their opinions, no matter how opposed their opinions may be to Scripture. The Pharisees were guilty of this. One author has said, the Pharisees were sure that the true Messiah would be one who agreed with their point of view and fulfilled their own particular idea of salvation. From that perspective, they stood in judgment on the Son of God so as to reject him. And that's where most of the world stands today. A Jesus who doesn't agree with their point of view will be rejected every time. The same author goes on to say, ultimately the Pharisees rejected Jesus because of their worldly agenda. We know this is true because in the generations after Jesus there were false messiahs who did not fulfil the biblical requirements but who adopted the Pharisees' platform. And these false messiahs received their endorsement. I think we can see that in Western society, all over the world. You adopt the secular agenda, the political agenda of whoever makes the loudest noise in society and social media, and you're accepted. You stand against that, and what happens? So many are happy to accept a Jesus who agrees with their own agenda, happy to endorse a Jesus who suits them. But every time they'll reject the Jesus as revealed in Scripture. The biblical Jesus gives offence to every earthly perspective, which is why people with such agendas end up rejecting the true Jesus revealed in Scripture. The problem we face when we talk to people about Christ is not the quality of the evidence for Jesus. The problem is proud hearts to re- that refuse to accept truth. It's always the case with unbelief, and it will never change. Unbelief will never run out of objections and will never have sufficient proof. You could spend days answering the questions and the sidetracks of someone who doesn't really want to know Jesus and it will never be enough the sooner we come to terms with that the sooner we'll stop feeling guilty about our evangelistic impotence and the sooner we will trust him to do the work that only he can do thanks for listening to City Edge Church for more information go to cityedgechurch.com.au